Father, we again just come to you and, and we just thank you for your word. And we especially thank you for this vision that we have here of who you are in Jesus Christ in all your glory. Lord, our foolish hearts have been darkened by the curse, by the fall, by our sin, by our pride. Lord, in just so many ways to where all we can see are the things of the world and we, we really don't take the time and the effort and, and, and open our eyes to, to see just who you are. Lord, we want a fresh vision today of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We want a fresh vision of who you, who you are in Christ, Lord, and, and uh, we can only have that by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so I ask as we get into this text in Revelation chapter 1, Lord, that, that you just, uh, just reveal yourself to, to us in a special way. Uh, we just ask for that, and we ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. This past week, I'm sure you're aware, we saw uh, quite a lot of activity in what people call Mother Nature. Uh, we, on Monday, we had the total eclipse of the sun that came across the United States. And then this past week, uh, this past uh, Friday, Saturday, we saw the, this Hurricane Harvey come in along the Texas coast. And uh, you got to wonder, you know. Where is God in all of this? Well, let me tell you where God is in all of this. God is on his throne. And as I'm going to say in a minute, there's no such thing as Mother Nature. Everything that happens in this world is ordered by God for his purposes. One of the great reasons for studying the minor prophecy is we see how God works through disasters and things we don't want to talk about, but God is in those things every bit as much as he's in the eclipse of the sun, but he has good purposes. Uh, he has good purposes for everything that he does, and we'll see that through, even through this storm that we're seeing in, in uh, Texas right now that might very well head our way a little bit. So uh, keep those people in prayer, and, but also remember that, that God's still on his throne. I, I was fascinated by the uh, total eclipse of the sun Monday. We didn't get a total eclipse here, but we got pretty close to it. I mean, you could see the skies kind of dark, and you didn't see them. We had a beautiful day for that, by the way, and, and you could see the skies sort of darkened, but you couldn't, you, you know, we didn't, we didn't go totally dark here. I don't think we really did anywhere in the United States, even though you had a total eclipse, but I was at Walmart's, and this lady had a pair of those glasses uh, that you could look up into the sun with, and I, you know, everybody was grabbing at her glasses and wanting to see, but I kind of waited there, and Brenda and I got to look through those glasses at that eclipse, and it was absolutely fascinating. And, and again, we just got almost a total eclipse, but you could call ours a partial eclipse. But elsewhere in the United States, they got a total eclipse of the sun. You could see it on the news. And you would have thought that Americans all over this country would have bowed their knees in worship to God Almighty, the creator of this universe. And, but they didn't. That wasn't the case at all. I don't know if you, you watched the news, but if you watched the news as this was going on, you heard things like, this is a great day for science. Did you hear that? You heard that over and over. Or Mother Nature really put on a show today. I heard one scientist say this. He said, it just shows you how vast our universe is that a coincid coincidental event like this could take place 
every hundred years or so. Coincidental event? Man, where did he check his brains out at? Another side, as I heard, he was interviewed, and he said the eclipse shows the symmetry of the sun and moon and the earth, but it's brought about by nothing more than pure chance. Now let me respond to that a little bit uh, with a few comments here. There is no such thing as Mother Nature. This is God's nature, and God controls nature. And everywhere in nature we see design. And this was not a great day for science, because I can tell you something, science or scientists did not create that total eclipse. God did. And to say that it's pure chance, pure, there's no such thing as chance. Chance is a word invented by men there, there's no power in chance. The reason we had a total eclipse of the sun, and you've got to think about this, is the fact that the sun is 400 times larger than the moon and sits 400 times further from the earth than the moon does. And so here you have this, this uh, uh, event where they seem to be almost the same size as they meet in the sky. And all this time, all while this is going on, while you could look up there and see that eclipse with those glasses, while all of this was going on, the earth is rotating around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. And the moon is rotating around the earth at 2,300 miles an hour. And God aligns it all up for us to see there on Monday. And it isn't pure chance. What this is, to, for me, it's evidence of God's wonderful, beautiful design for creation. Listen to what God says in Genesis 1.14. He says that he has arranged the universe for seasons and for days and years and for signs. Signs to announce prophecies that are events that are on the horizon that are about to take place. I don't know if that was what our eclipse was about on Monday. I, I Probably not, maybe so. But it's also signs that are evidence of the fact that we have an awesome, infinite creator. A creator to whom we are responsible to. When you look up at that sky and you see God's order in the universe, that tells you that there's a creator who created the universe, and guess what? He created you and I too, and we are responsible to him, and we are responsible to act the way he wants us to act, to live the way he wants us to act, to do what he wants us to do. And where do we find what he wants us to do? In his word. And so that's what we see when we see something like this. You know, even if you've never read the Bible, even if you've never read Zephaniah, I mean, even if you've, you've never read Genesis, then common sense tells you that when you look up in the sky and you see an event like we saw on Monday, that that is not an accident. That is God's design. Well, why do people say things like these people on the news were saying? Let me tell you why, because Paul, Paul nails it on the head. He says, for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, 
even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and in their foolish heart, and their, fu- and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you understand what Paul is saying right there? He's saying that since people have willfully ignored the obvious role of God in creation, then then what has taken place, they can see something like the total eclipse of the sun and they can call that a great day for science. Or they can say, boy, Mother Nature is putting on a show because their hearts have been darkened. They've been darkened by unbelief. They've been darkened by idolatry. They've been darkened by humanism and secularism. They've been darkened mainly by their sin. And you could say this, you could say there's been a total eclipse of the sun in their hearts, and that S-O-N, sun. They can't see the sun because of their unbelief. They can't see the sun because of their idolatry. They can't see the sun uh, because their foolish hearts have been darkened by their sins. And what a, they miss out on so much. Listen to what Stephen Collins said about uh, the eclipse in his article. He says, it is so precisely designed that the mathematics related to the positioning of the solar system bodies reflect not chance, but rather the precision of a designer with skills infinitely greater than a master watchmaker who has ordered the heavens in such a way that, only, that the only place, watch this, the only place where a solar eclipse can be seen is from the Earth's surface which just happens to be the only planet where God has made human beings in his own image. That's the only place from where you could have seen this total eclipse of the sun was from the earth's surface. God was putting on a show for the world to see, showing the glory of his creation, showing the glory of his majesty. Well, that brings us to Revelation. What makes the book of Revelation so exciting is that the God hidden by this eclipse of this curse, this eclipse of our, this darkness of our sin, uh, comes out in all of his glory right here in these first few chapters. The one who orchestrated the creation of this universe, the designer of the heavens and the, and the earth, I mean, we see him right here in the book of Revelation in chapter number one. And so I want to go back to our, to our text, and, and uh, we're going to be picking up today uh, in verse number 14. Verse number 14. But let's, let's go back to where we left off last time. You remember, John was on the Isle of Patmos. He was a prisoner there. He had been placed there by the evil emperor Domitian who was persecuting the church in a persecution that cost uh, 40,000 lives, Christian lives. 40,000 Christians died during his persecution. And John was there, and what was John doing? He was pretty much all by himself, but he was having church anyway on the Lord's Day. And he was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. What a great, I said last week, what a great place to be on the Lord's Day in the spirit of God where you recognize the very presence of God in your, in your heart and in your life. And John was having a special time of worship. And then something 
supernatural happened. Something fantastic happened. He heard a voice like a trumpet. And the first two words he heard were, I am. Man, I'll tell you what, you're all alone on this island. You've been looking at the sea for, for a couple of years. That's all you've seen. And then all of a sudden you hear this voice and you hear, I am. And John was frightened. And he said, this voice said, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last. Now John knew who that was speaking to him. He knew that it was God. And so he does something very courageous, something I don't know that I would have done. I think I might have ran. He didn't run. He slowly turned around. And when he turned, he saw the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. He saw God in all of his glory. And the most striking thing he saw in this appearance of God, remember this is where we left off last week, was this brilliant glowing light. He saw the Shekinah glory of God. It encompassed all of this figure that that this one like the Son of Man that John saw. He was encompassed in the Shekinah glory of of God. His whole countenance was shining like the sun, S-U-N. And he had this band of golden light around his waist. And that light represented the majesty and deity of God. And then we want to pick up now in verse number 14. Look at this picture here. His head was white. His hair was white. His head and hair were white like wool. I mean, John's describing this in human words. He sees God in all of his glory, and this is the best comparison he can make. He says his head and hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, as I said last week, this is not just symbolism here. Now, there's some symbolism in this. Symbolism is the byproduct of the reality of who God is. But this is an actual visual picture that John has that he describes, again, as I said, as best as he possibly can. And look at this. His head is white, and his hair is white. Now, if you've ever looked at pictures of Jesus, portraits of Jesus that people have painted, by the way, don't hang any of those in your home or put them down if I come to your home because I don't want to criticize you because we're not supposed to have images of Jesus painted in our homes. Uh, uh, You know, again, I don't think you're going to go to hell for that, but, but I wouldn't recommend it because you can't paint an image of God. You can't do that. God doesn't want you painting an image of him. Read the Ten Commandments right there. You should have no images. Make no images of me. And so, anyway, you go into some of these places where they do have these images, and if you go into a black church, who is Jesus? He's a black guy. They paint him as a black guy, and they've got a picture of a black Jesus hanging in in their church. Some Some of the black churches do, the ones that do that. You go in a Chinese church, And Jesus has slanted eyes, and his skin's a little yellow. You go into an American church where they have a portrait of Jesus, and he's an Anglo-Saxon with blue eyes. Well, John says that his head was white. So I guess that's right. No, 
That's not what John's saying at all. John, uh, Jesus was not an Anglo-Saxon. If you saw Jesus in his flesh, you would see him as a Middle Eastern person with dark skin and a beard like Chap, probably. So, so look at Chap. And that's, that's the only image of Jesus you will get from Chap, but I'm joking. I got to put him down now. I know he's here recruiting you guys for his new church, so no, I'm teasing. I'm glad Chap's here and Grace is here today with us. What a blessing. But anyway... If you saw Jesus in his normal skin that he had on this earth, it would be a tan-colored skin. So why does John say he's, his head is white? Because again, he is emanating with the Shekinah glory of God. When you're one day emanating with the Shekinah glory of God, we won't be able to see your skin. All we'll be able to see is that glowing light. That's why Adam and Eve in the garden, when when the spirit was removed from them, they realized, oh no, we're naked. They could see their skin, all of that glow that they had before they lost the glory that God had given them, all of that glow. They were created, remember, in the image of God. All of that was gone. That was removed. One day when you're in your new glorified body, you're going to be, you're going you're gonna to be like a fluorescent light bulb. You're going to be radiating the very light of God in you. You're not God, but you'll have God in you to such a degree that you will glow. What a day that's going to be. I've said this on many occasions. C.S. Lewis says in one of his books that if you could see the person sitting next to you right now in their glorified state, you would fall down and worship them. That's how beautiful and wonderful they're going to be. So here is Jesus with this glowing white hair and this glowing white face. And John says his eyes were like a flame of fire. There was some, that was a glowing light coming forth from his eyes too. But that light was something special when John looked there. Because that light went further out than just around his head and just around his, his uh, face. It went on out into the world. It went on through John's soul. Because the eyes of Christ see everything. The eyes of Christ see the heart of men. They see the heart of women. They see... The eyes of Christ see everything that goes on in this world. Nothing escapes his eyes. And they're like flames of fire because they burn through the soul. And, you, and, and there's nothing hidden from him that he can't see. And then you look now at the next verse in verse number 15. His feet were like fine brass. Again, though, refined in the furnace. They were glowing. They were like brass and yet they were glowing. And his voice was as the sound of of many waters. And so he's got these, these glowing feet that look like brass to John. There's some kind of special cover, maybe color. They might have, he might have had shoes on or something like that, and yet still the glow is emanating from, these, from his feet, and they're like fine brass. And I think there's some symbolism there because brass represents judgment in the Bible. And who has all judgment handed over to him? Jesus Christ does. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, All judgment has been given to the Son. I have all authority over heaven and earth. He is the judge. He's the judge who stands at the door. And so his feet were like brass. In his voice, like the sound of many waters. When I was a young boy, I went to Niagara Falls. And the thing that impressed me most about Niagara Falls was not the sight of the falls because you really can't see the falls because the mist comes up and, 
and pretty much covers up most of the falls. The thing that impressed me the most about Niagara Falls was the sound of the many waters. That river coming off that cliff and hitting those rocks below and, and the noise it made and it rolled over that cliff and as it hit those rocks, it was a deafening noise. It, it was all you could hear. And that's what John's trying to say right here. The voice of the Lord is like the sound of many waters. It is all you can hear. It's the only voice you can hear. Let me tell you what. When the Lord speaks, you will hear the Lord. You will hear if you give the Lord a chance. I mean, little Samuel heard a small, still voice, but he heard the Lord, yet he heard the Lord. The Lord knows how to speak to us if we'll just give him a chance and we'll listen. But, his, but John hears this voice, and it was as the sound of many waters. He described it earlier as, as the sound of a trumpet. And then look in verse number 16. There's something really interesting here. He says, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance, the countenance of the sun, S-O-N, was like the sun, S-U-N, shining in its strength. Now, again, we get that number seven here in this verse, and that's important because in the immediate sense, he's referring to the seven churches of Asia, but that number seven is, means divine or is used for divine perfection or divine completion. So it refers not only to those seven churches, but to the seven churches throughout the world at that time and throughout every age. And so the, in his right hand, he has seven stars related to the church. And what are those stars? Well, you've got to jump down to verse number 20. And in verse number 20, you see that those seven stars uh, are the angels of the seven churches. They're the angels of the seven churches. Now, he could be referring to heavenly angels here, but I don't think so. That's the same word that John uses himself in John chapter 7 when uh, John the Baptist sends his messengers to Jesus to ask him if he's really the Messiah. You remember that? Well, that word for messengers there is the same word that John uses here in the book of Revelation. So what I think he's talking about here, he's talking about the seven messengers of the church. Every church has a messenger, a pastor, an elder, a messenger. And every church of every age should have a pastor. Every church throughout the world in John's day had a pastor. And that fits with what Daniel says over in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. He refers to God's messengers in the latter days uh, as he's, uh, who, will, who are going to win many to the Lord as stars that shine forever and ever. And so it fits there perfectly. And then out of his mouth, out of the Lord's mouth, uh, comes this two-edged sword. Well, we, I don't think there was a little, literal sword coming out of his mouth, but John knew about the Word of God being the two-edged sword, and so that's his way of describing the Word of God coming forth from his mouth. It cut to the marrow of the soul. It was like a two-edged sword. And uh, uh, John, remember in, in, in the Gospel of John in chapter number one, he describes Jesus as the Logos, as the Word of God. And so Jesus is the Logos, and everything that Jesus speaks is the Word of God. You know, just think about that for a minute. We have the Gospels, and those are the words of Jesus Christ. 
we have the Old Testament and we're told in 1 Peter who spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus did. Who spoke through the Apostle Paul? Jesus did. And so everything we have in these 66 books represent the Word of God. But I got news for you. Nothing's going to change, but we haven't heard the last word yet. Do you realize that when you see Jesus one day and he speaks to you, whatever he says is like a two-edged sword? That's why it's going to be quite an awesome event to be in his presence. Because whatever he says, those eyes, of, those eyes like a flame of fire are going to look right through your soul, so you better be careful what you say. Because he knows your heart. And you're not going to uh, flatter him or bribe him or do anything like that. He knows your heart. You're not going to be able to get him to do what you want him to do. He knows your heart. And baby, if your heart's right, you can get him to do what you want him to do. You know, maybe the best situation when we're in the presence of the Lord is probably what we are going to do, and that's just keep our mouth shut. And then when he speaks to you, when he speaks to this world, I don't know if we'll have news networks then. We won't have CNN, I promise you. We might have a little fox or something like fox. But every word that you hear him speak, he might even have a Twitter account. Could you imagine that? But it won't be like Trump's Twitter account. Every word that Jesus Christ speaks is the word of God. Every word that he's ever spoken is the word of God. Every, God that, every word that he will ever speak throughout eternity is the word of God. And it's like a two-edged sword. It's, I mean, you listen to him in the Gospels, and you listen to him speak, and man, he, he knew how to shut people up. He knew how to take that sword out of his mouth and whoom. You know, he didn't have to hit anybody or knock anybody down or do anything. All he had to do was speak. And his words were so powerful. And I'm not talking just about the supernatural power. I'm talking about the way, the absolute truth that came out of his mouth that cuts to the marrow of the soul. And it's going to be like that forever. And then he says in verse number 16, I, I know we're there, aren't we? He says this, he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining forth in its strength. I mean, just this mighty, glowing flow of light and power coming forth from the Lord. That's what John saw. So he gets this vision of God Almighty in the flesh. One, he says earlier in the book of, of the first chapter, one like the Son of God. He knew this was Jesus, but he also knew that this was Jesus in his glorified state. This was Jesus as Jehovah God. This was Jesus as Almighty God. That's why I say he had so much courage to turn around and even look when he heard those words, I am, the Alpha, the Omega, the First, the Last. And he turns around and he looks and he gets this great vision that we just looked at here and then look at verse number 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I promise you, when you see him, if he walked in this room right now in his glory, you would fall on your face as dead. You would fall at his feet at, 
as dead. That's how glorious he is. Think about that. I mean, here was John who had walked and talked with the Lord these three years of, of, the, of the Lord's ministry on this earth, and he knew the Lord probably better than any person other than maybe Mary or Joseph. I mean, he, he knew the Lord. In fact, I, know, I think he knew, them, he knew him much better than Mary and Joseph did. We know he did because he was listening to the word of God being spoken. And he was, he was a disciple who was learning from what he was hearing. And he sees him, and, and, and he doesn't see this same Jesus. The Jesus that he had saw before, they were friends. They were friends. Jesus said, no longer do I just call you servant, I call you friend. You're my friend. No longer do I just call you a disciple, you're my friend. They were friends. Jesus laid in his bosom. And, and when he sees Jesus, he, said, he doesn't say, hey, dude, how you been doing? You know, how's it been with you? He doesn't say that. He, he sees Jesus now, and he falls on his feet as dead because he sees the Lord in all of his glory. And look at the compassion of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, stay there, dude, where you belong. Listen, look, listen to, look what Jesus did there. I fell at his feet in debt, but he laid his right hand, his hand of power. He laid his right hand on me in compassion and mercy. He says, John, don't be afraid. And I, I would have thought at this point, he would have said, I'm Jesus. Remember me? Yeah, I'm glorified here, but you're, I told you. I and the Father are one. I told you I was returning to the glory that I had before the foundation of the world, so you should have expected this. He doesn't say any of that. I mean, he, really, he really still keeps us on a pretty high plane here. He says, do not be afraid. I am. I am. I am who I am. I'm the first and I'm the last. The great I am. Father God, Almighty God, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now some people might get a little bit offended that I call him Father God, but read Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. He's everlasting Father. Maybe we need to read another verse over in Isaiah. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 44. But Isaiah 44, and look down at verse number 6. Isaiah 44, verse number 6. Now, some would say that this is John quotes from this verse. Remember I told you there's 500, over 500 references to the Old Testament, but no direct quotes because Isaiah is recording, and I'm going to use this example here. Isaiah is recording what the Lord is saying, him to, saying to him to record. He's speaking about what he's seen. John is speaking about what he's seen. 
And both of them are going to come to the same conclusion and say basically the same thing, but they're not going to say exactly the same thing because they both had different experiences. That doesn't make that doesn't give you a means to criticize the word. That gives you means to to take faith in the word of God. I mean, it gives me great uh, encouragement the fact that Isaiah says one thing, John says it in a different way, but they're both saying the same thing about the same person. And that's exactly what you see here in verse number nine. Thus says the Lord. When you see the Lord in caps like that, if you've ever done any serious study of the Bible, what does that tell you? That is speaking, that is Yahweh, Jehovah, that is Almighty God. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. Now wait a minute, how many kings of Israel are there going to be? Who's king of kings after all? Jesus is king of kings. Don't tell me Jesus and the Father aren't one. That Jesus isn't God Almighty. And I've had people leave this church over this very issue, but it's over and over and over again. You, you see this in the Bible. Look, I believe in the Trinity, but I don't believe in hyper-Trinitarianism. There are not three different gods. There, here, O Israel, your Lord is one God. He is Almighty God. He is Jehovah God. He's King. He's Lord of Lords. He's uh, God Shabbat. He is the, he's the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Shabbat. Look at what he says in the next, next phrase there. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. It almost sounds like you're getting two gods, but boy, who's his Redeemer? He, he makes it clear it's the same. The, the, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Shabbat, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven, same God. And listen to what he says. I am, I am the first and the last. And when somebody tells you there's more than one God, read that last phrase to them. Besides me, singular, there is no God. There's only one God, and his name is none other than Jesus Christ. Remember when we looked at that? Passage in Zechariah, in the last day, everyone will know that there is one God and he will have one name. And what is that name? It is Jehovah. Jehovah is salvation. Name above all names, Jesus Christ. Glorious day that's going to be when everybody sees him as God Almighty. The one that hung for you on the cross is not some ordinary man. He's not some lesser God. He's not... Anybody but Jehovah God, your creator. On Monday when we saw that eclipse that was designed by our creator, that's the same person who died for our sins, who shed his blood for us. And if we lessen him and we degrade him as something less than that, that takes away from what he did for us on the cross. Only God can save us. I'm pretty passionate about that, by the way. Verse, verse number... 18, listen to what he says. He goes on. I mean, you're waiting for him to say, you remember me? Jesus, Jesus. No, he's letting him really know who he is. I am he who lives. I am. The I am is he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. 
Amen. That's right, chapter. That's exactly what he says. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. I am the one who lived forever before the beginning of time. I was the one who was crucified and was dead. I am the great I am. I am who I am forevermore. Now let me tell you something. You can't kill God. When, when we see death in the Bible, that, that is, it's really the word that can be translated asleep. But Jesus didn't die. Jesus gave up his spirit and the body that he was in died. And where did Jesus go? Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me where? In paradise. So he went down into the grave into Hades. And he has the key to Hades. So Hades could not keep Jesus there. He's the one who created Hades. He's the one who sustains Hades. Death, he's the one who gives life. He is eternal life. All life comes through him. And so he has the keys to Hades. He has the keys to death. And every single one of us, when we were born in Adam, we had a sentence. We were sentenced at that point to death and Hades. And what Jesus is saying, John, I can set people free. I have the keys to Hades. I have the keys to death. I'm the giver of life. I can take people, give people life so they don't ever have to go to Hades. They don't ever have to go to, to, the, to the lower earth. They don't ever have to go to hell itself. And all we have to do to get released from this death sentence that we're under is to say, Lord, I take your propitiation, that blood that you shed, the blood of God that you shed on that cross, and I appropriate that to my life, to my soul. And when I do that, when I receive that gift, I'm born again. And God then has the permission. He has the keys not only to death and Hades, he has the key to my life. And he has permission to change me into his own image so that I can be fit for heaven. And if we don't do that and we're not born again, we're never going to make it to heaven. I don't care what religion you are, what religion your parents were. We have to be born again. And Christ has the keys to all of that. And who has he entrusted those keys with? To us? To us? We've been given those keys. He has the big key, but he's been giving us the key to hand these keys out to people who are lost. And now, the Lord John gives John, the Lord gives John, not the Lord John, the Lord gives John some instructions and listen to what he says. Verse number 19. He says, write these things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. In other words, write about the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. And write about the vision about what was, and we'll see that, I believe, in Revelation 12, and what is, the state of what's going on right now in this vision, and what is to come. And that's the most of the book of Revelation, which is the vision of these prophecies of the day of the Lord. And then he says in verse number 20, he's, as we finish up, he says, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand 
and the seven golden lampstands, which you saw earlier. The seven stars are the angels, of the, are the messengers of the seven churches, which represent the seven churches in Asia, the, and the number seven represents all the churches, the perfect, the perfect church, all the church in every age and every time. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, watch this, are the seven churches. The seven churches of Asia, all the other churches in the world at that time, the true churches, and all the church, church, churches in every single age. What's a lampstand do? What's a lamp? It's a menorah. Stand maybe shouldn't even be there. We just say lamp. What's a lamp do? It gives out light. It gives out light. Who gives out light? The true church gives out light. We're the lampstands. Whose light is it? It's all that light we just looked at shining on those pages of that first chapter. It's the light of God. That's what we, that's, that's why we, we want God to live through us so that we can Give out light. And here's our problem. In a lot of our lives, there's been a, at least a partial eclipse of the sun, the S-U-N. And how has that eclipse come about? It's come about because we have blocked out the light of God by our unbelief, by our idolatry, and by our sin. Let me tell you something. You're never going to, you know, we used to sing that song, Let My Light Shine, or well, how's it go? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. There we go. We used to sing that song when we were kids. It's never going to shine when our lives are full of idolatry. It's never going to shine when our lives are full of sin. And it's certainly never going to shine when we don't believe. When we don't believe God for every word that he gives us, for every word that comes out of that mouth, that two-edged sword that comes forth from his mouth. Well, we don't believe every single one of these words in this Bible, then our light is not going to shine. Over in the book of Joel, chapter number two, those of you that were here, been here on Wednesday night, you've heard this, we looked at this passage in great detail. But there's a prophecy there over in chapter 2 that says, The sun shall be darkened and the moon shall be turned to blood before the coming and great and awesome day of the Lord. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. The moon shall be turned to blood and the sun shall be darkened before the coming great and awesome and terrible day of the Lord. There are a lot of prophecy guys out there right now that will tell you that those blood moons that we had last fall where the moon was turned to blood were a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And then right behind that, coming right behind that, we have this total eclipse of the sun here in the United States. So are we about to enter the day of the Lord? Is that what these, these signs are about? I, we might be entering the day of the Lord very soon, but I don't think that's what these signs are about. I think when the, blood's, the moon turns like blood, 
and the sun is darkened, at the beginning of the day of the Lord, it's going to be something much more uh, traumatic than, than what we saw this past week. Much more spectacular, let me put it that way. It's going to be seen all over the world. And everybody's going to know and be able to look up at the sky and see that the day of the Lord has begun. We won't be here. We're going to be out of here. We're going to be raptured out of here. But that doesn't mean that those blood moons and that solar eclipse we saw Monday weren't signs from God. Those are signs from God very clearly pointing to his majesty and his awesome power and his awesome intelligence in creating a universe that we could have such signs actually seen from this earth. And I believe that we are getting very, very close to the day of the Lord. But for now, we live in what I would call an age of almost a total eclipse of the sun, S-U-N. But just as that eclipse Monday was a momentary event, that eclipse of the sun, S-U-N, or S-O-N, rather, excuse me, is a momentary event. It's lasted about 6,000 years. Seems like a long time to us. But on the calendar, on the eternal calendar, or the calendar of eternity, it's just a bleep of time. And I can tell you right now, it's getting darker and darker to where we're almost at the total eclipse. And when that takes place, that's when the sun begins to come out. That's when the S-U-N begins to be re revealed. And we are living in that day. We are living very, very close to the time in which Jesus will be revealed, not just as a human guy who died on a cross, but as almighty God. And that should motivate us to get ready for his coming. Man, he is the great I am. He has the keys to Hades and death. And he's given us those keys to help others see the light of his glory. What an awesome responsibility in these last days. Don't take your life lightly. Find out what God wants you to do to be his light. You're a lamp. Our church is a lamp. We want to be a light into this world. We want to take those keys and see people find eternal life in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this great vision that we've been given of you here today in, in Revelation chapter 1. Lord, we look forward to seeing more of you as we progress on in this great book. And Lord, I just uh, uh, thank you that uh, you've given us these words so we can prepare ourselves, be aware of the times that we're in, 
that, Lord, we're living in the days of this total eclipse is about to be over. And we're about to be, uh, uh, Lord, rescued from this lost and dying world. But, Lord, in the meantime, you've left us here. You've called us here to serve you and, Lord, to be your vessels of light. Help us to Help us not to have a heart that, that is eclipsed with darkness, Lord. Help us to be full of your light. And then, only then, can we be the kind of witnesses you want us to be. Help us to be that, Lord. We ask that in Christ's glorious name. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.